Hello and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ben. And me, Ellie. And Happy New Year to you all, belatedly. Can we say that still? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this will be out on the 1st of March, probably, or something like that. This is, a, this is your very friendly, sort of monthly podcast. <laughs> it is our birthday. Happy birthday to us. We're three. Three? Well, two. Two? Two. How do Come birthdays on. work? He Sorry, we're such... two going you into our third year. You exaggerate Whatever. so much. Anyway, it's, we are going into <laughs> our third year. That's what I meant. <laughs> That's not how birthdays work, Yeah, then. I know. <laughs> that makes me much older. I don't like it. Can we go back <laughs> to the normal way? Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, anyway, I thought I would just say that we've had now 63,000 downloads as of today. I think, I'm no expert, but that's pretty blooming good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. We've had 30 episodes, 63,000 downloads. So you can work it out. It's about 2,500 listeners-ish that we've got monthly, which is pretty good. So hello to all of you out there. Hi, everyone. And yeah, we're really pleased to be back because we've been very much excited to record the next episode. We've we've read the book for this a long time ago, didn't we? Yeah, we did. we? We read it before Christmas. Well, actually during Christmas. So we are ready Ready. Yeah, so enough waffle about ourselves. Today we are talking about Dave Goulson's book, The Garden Jungle. And later on, we're going to be having our native plant of the month, Holly. Very nice. Yeah, and this episode has actually become a bit of a tribute to Dave Goulson, which we think he's well worth. Yeah, an accidental tribute. Yeah. We've ended up with three items about Dave Goulson in this one episode. This is the Dave no, Goulson four. episode. No, There's a fourth. Oh, is there? Yeah, which I'll oh, talk about at the end. Goodness. Yeah. But yeah, we've Big got a fan bit- club here. <laughs> <laughs> we've got a bit of news which has come from his research team, which is really exciting. Yeah, but first of all, we just wanted to say thank you to everybody who came yesterday, as we're recording this, to our first ever podcast meetup, which Yay! was at the Sir Harold Hillier Gardens down in Hampshire. And it was such a fabulous, sunny winter's day, late February, but we went to go and have a look around the uh, the winter gardens, didn't we? That's specifically why you picked that garden to go to. We were already down in Hampshire, we found this garden, and I would say it's the best winter garden I've ever seen yet. Because other ones we've seen, in you know, they're usually part of a, a wider garden, and they usually dedicate maybe a 10 maybe a maximum 20 meter long border that you yeah. walk through in winter because obviously gardens don't attract loads of visitors in winter but this was phenomenal there were just parts of it that you just kept going around different corners and finding new things and it was just really magical i absolutely loved it yeah and daphne blew her at every corner which meant the whole garden smelt fantastic it as did. well yeah yes. really good but also hello to everybody who came in Met us. It was a very nice surprise. It was a real surprise because we were there, we said 10.30 and we got there at 10.25 and we saw a group and said, no, they can't be for us. <laughs> but they were for us. And we did, We honestly thought that, you know, maybe there was a quite high chance not a single person would turn up. But yeah, for those who did come, thank you so much. And it was lovely to meet you all, including... Some visitors from Canada. <laughs> yeah, my uncle and aunt from Canada who are avid listeners to the show. You may have seen them pop up on Facebook. Pete Mitchell, he is wonderful, responded to lots of things. And it was the best surprise ever. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we actually learned quite a lot of different little factoids from some of the people who are walking around the garden with us. Yeah. So those will be included in the next couple of episodes, which is pretty cool. So yeah, there will be more meetups in the future. We just did this one. We didn't really organise anything for it because we just wanted to see if it would work. But there will be more. Um, it does seem like it's something people would be interested in. And the next one will be in Devon. So we're working our way around the country slowly. And uh, it will be in the summer, but you need to Sign up to our newsletter to find out any more information about that as it comes later in the year. So we have a newsletter, it's on Substack and there will be a link in the show notes. But talking about the show notes, one of the things that was mentioned to me a few times as we were walking around was, what are the show notes? (laughs) (laughs) Where do you get them? Where do you find them? So I'm going to tell you now. On your podcast app, if you're listening on an app on your phone, once you've clicked on the actual episode, if you just scroll down a little way, it will come to the description of the episode and within that description there will be a link to our website and on that website there is a a blog post for each individual episode we do and within that blog post are all the links to everything that we're talking about so you can go on there and find more information about everything we've discussed and with that we also have a blog post on our website elliswellies.com called websites for wildlife gardeners 
And that has links to loads of organizations where you can find out more information. And they're basically the places that we go to research this podcast. It's full of really loads of juicy stuff. Yeah, and we keep that list really live. So if we find more information, more new interesting organizations, people doing uh, research on certain topics, then we, we keep updating it. So yeah, that's where to go if you want to do some some research yourself. Because all we're doing on this podcast is we're really not the experts in anything. All we're doing is translating the research that's often behind a paywall in an academic journal or something like that. We go ahead and read it and we translate it for all you lovely people listening. So we're not the experts and you can access all that information yourself if you want to. Just go onto the website and that's how you find links to everything we've discussed. The first item on the Dave Goulson list on the agenda of today's episode is some news. And this is quite a big one, which would definitely take up the whole of our news slot. Just this month, a paper was released by PhD student Canel Tazin de Montagu and supervised by Dave Goulson of today's book club fame, which detailed an excellent and much needed study they did into the effect of urbanisation, habitat quality and pesticides and herbicides on garden bird species. Bizarrely, this has never been done in this way before, which is particularly nuts when you think about the hideous cocktail of poisons available to literally anyone to buy. Yeah, in, in every garden centre. And supermarket. Yeah. And, yeah, awful. Canal looked at data provided by the British Trust for Ornithology's Garden Birdwatch Scheme, which is a fabulous citizen science project where participants record the species and abundance of birds coming to their garden on a weekly basis. Of the fabulous 24,000 people who do this every week, they asked a sample range of questions about their pesticide use, including the type and also when it was applied. They looked at where the gardens were, categorising them as either urban, suburban or rural. And then thirdly, they assessed the quality of both the individual garden and the surrounding area. And those two latter indices were themselves calculated by looking at factors that they expected to have a positive impact on the local bird population. What's that sort of thing? Um, Well, deciduous trees are found to very much benefit birds. So the quantity of deciduous trees in the area and in their own gardens, Mm -hmm. other flowering plants, like the abundance of insects and just lots of all round good wildlife garden practices. And from all the people they asked, they ended with the total workable sample of 615 gardens And from those, got some pretty shocking results. Something that really surprised me was that despite those sampled being by definition interested in garden wildlife, because these people have opted to do the Garden Birdwatch scheme. Yeah, which you have to pay for. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. well, they've actually just um, changed it. So it's free. But traditionally, the BTO scheme, you have to actually pay to be involved like it's really like an active step to get involved oh, wow. in it so you've you've yeah. really got to be into the garden birds to yeah, sign up yeah definitely well exactly well of those people 32 percent of those sample gardens that's a 615 had had at least one pesticide applied within the study year and it's pointed out quite rightly in the paper this means the actual national usage of pesticides will therefore probably be much higher Most of those applied were specifically herbicides, with glyphosate being the most likely chemical at a whopping 53% of the total. That's the active ingredient in Roundup, for those of you who don't know. And they also looked at five of the most other common pesticides, acetamibrid, mecoprop P, metaldehyde, which is the nasty slug pellets, deltamethrin and dicamba. And try saying those after a pint. (laughs) So what about the effects of those chemicals? Well, the overall picture is most definitely not good for birds. Or rather, if you want or need a concrete reason to give someone to make them stop spraying, it's actually quite good. It was shown that while a favourable surrounding habitat that's outside the garden had a very strong influence on what and how many birds visit your garden... That effect is significantly reversed if you use chemicals in your garden. So imagine you've got a rural garden surrounded by lots of trees. You have lots of birds in the area. If you're spraying anything in your garden, it's going to have a negative impact on that population to quite a significant degree. The worst pesticides also came from a really wide range of types, which means it's not just a case of using one over the other to have 
a limited impact. And then looking at how they affect different species, the picture was a little bit complicated, but one of the hard-hitting results is the effect of pesticides and herbicides on house sparrows. And these are our favourite birds in our garden because they're such a little gang of wonderful... Because we love them. We love them. (laughs) But... It was found that spraying of any pesticide in a garden resulted in, on average, 12% fewer house sparrows. And if glyphosate alone was used, it accounted for 25% fewer sparrows. And in gardens where metaldehyde slug pellets were used, house sparrows were reduced by 37%. That's quite large numbers. We need to be a bit careful about this because it's that doesn't actually say what's going on necessarily. No. right? Because the thing is... House sparrows are seed eaters. Yeah. So you would think that, well, what does a slug pellet have to do with a seed eater? Yeah. But it's about what's going on in the garden generally. If you're the sort of person who is spraying off, say, dandelions, but the dandelions are producing a seed that would be eaten by the birds, then the less presence of, or the lower presence of um, house sparrows might be because there's fewer seeds because you allow fewer weeds because of you're using the pesticide. Yeah. Um, not there's not necessarily a direct effect that they're so, poisoning well, yeah, well, did they, they look at that they they talked about the two types of effects so there's the direct effect whereby the actual pesticide or herbicide and they kind of call them both pesticides in the study yeah um actually gets onto the bird and somehow affects it in that way yeah right yeah and then there's the indirect way which you've just mentioned which is to reduce the actual abundance of food that that bird wants to eat So they don't discern between those two types because that study is a different study altogether. It would be a different study. So, yeah, yeah, but they acknowledge that those are the two ways that it could happen. Yeah, I'm just I'm interested because I don't it's not a clear um, connection between slug pellet use and house sparrows specifically. No, no. So I'd be interested if they do more research on this. You know, what's actually what's the link there? What's actually going on? We've actually put a link to the full study in the show notes that we just told you how to access And I really do urge you to all go and read the whole study. It's not particularly long. It's very easy to read in a way. There's a few statistic-y bits in there, which you can sort of gloss over, but (laughs) it's really, really good. Um, And then you can arm yourselves with all the facts. But before you do that, I'll share just one last point, which is that while rural gardens unsurprisingly came out on top with the most bird species and also the highest abundance, Where urban gardens were managed for birds and other wildlife specifically, including providing food and habitat, like all the things we always tell people to do, some of those negative impacts of of being in an urban area on birds was actually shown to be reversed. If that's not a message to encourage people to keep on wildlife gardening, then nothing is. That's fascinating. The Garden Birdwatch scheme is really, really in-depth science. I mean, amongst the citizen science projects, it's been going for ages, hasn't it? Since the 1990s, that one. Yeah, yeah and the, the the depth of their their research is, is really interesting. And, and at the latest Wildlife Garden Forum Symposium, which was just a couple of months ago, it was online, uh, the British Trust for Ornithology, that's the BTO who run the scheme, they were actually there providing one of the talks and discussing some more about um, the results that they found in the last couple of years. Mm, looking um, at the effects of the winters and, and very, or the weather we've been having. That's right, it's extreme weather yeah. and uh, milder winters or you know, what really have you. That was really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. And you can actually go ahead and watch it yourself online. Um, so the Wildlife Garden Forum, on their website, they recorded all the talks from the symposium and you can either watch them as a video or you can download and listen to them all as audio. One was from the BTO, another was from Plant Life, which went into lots of detail on sort of flowering lawns and the best way to do them. That was fascinating. And we're going to bring you a snippet of both of those over the next couple of episodes. But the third person speaking <laughs> at that symposium... Drum rolls. Was, guess who? Guess who? Yeah, Dave Gorson. <laughs> Yay! So just before we go on to discuss his book, we're going to give you a couple of minutes break from us chatting and listen to a little bit of audio from his talk for the Wildlife Garden Forum. Anyway, I think insects are rather lovely and I don't understand why anyone else wouldn't agree. Um, Incredibly variable, diverse creatures um, have been around since, well, for about 480 million years, which is an awful long time, twice as long as the oldest dinosaurs, which has given them a long time to speciate and which is why they come in such an amazing variety of 
of colours and shapes and sizes and so on. Um, we know of about 1.1 million species of insect. They make up about 70% of, of known species on our planet. And uh, um, it, what's really interesting is we discover new ones all the time, and it's it's estimated there might be three or four million more species of insect that we haven't even discovered yet on our planet. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Anyway, sadly, as as I'm sure everyone is aware, insects are not doing so well. They've survived nearly half a billion years. They've survived five extinction events that went before. We're now in the midst of the sixth mass extinction event. This this unique, uniquely for mass extinction events driven by uh, a species on the on the planet, us, of course. Um, now, I don't want to dwell on the doom and gloom but i did think i, I perhaps i should show you one example of of uh, an insect that's not doing so well let's just let me show you what's happened to one of my favorite insects this is a lovely little creature called the shrill carter uh, a type of bumblebee um, which used to be pretty common um all over the southern half of of certainly england and wales um didn't didn't quite well just about made it into scotland in its heyday but uh, as time's gone on, this 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 bee has been disappearing. Um, I became interested in in what was happening with rare bumblebees in about 2000, um, and I went looking for this bee in one of its last remaining haunts, which was Salisbury Plain there. And I spent a whole summer looking. And eventually, found some um, beautiful little things with a high pitched buzz, which is where the name comes from. But anyway, that so that Salisbury Plain population has now gone. Um, and the one on the Somerset levels to the west is teetering on the edge of extinction. This this bee is disappearing before our eyes and could easily go extinct in Britain within within a few years. Um, interestingly, actually, it's pretty, it is relevant to gardeners because uh, if you happen to, to particularly live in East London, um, north or south of the Thames, then you might get one of these things in your garden. One of their last strongholds is is in the Thames estuary. Anyway, um, I, w- I won't dwell on the doom and gloom. Let's 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 uh, turn to other matters. Why does it matter that insects are declining? Um, well, as well as making up the bulk of life on Earth, they're food for a huge number of birds and bats and freshwater fish, lizards, amphibians, and so on. Um, but probably much more importantly, they're involved in all sorts of ecological processes. Um, all sorts of things like recycling of dung and dead bodies uh, and leaves and tree trunks and you name it, pretty much any organic material. They're also really important biocontrol agents. I think that the future of farming is is to, is to move much more towards encouraging natural enemies rather than using pesticides. Um, they They distribute seeds, they keep the soil healthy, they do all sorts of stuff. Of course, the one thing most of this people don't never notice and are blithely unaware of, but there is one thing the insects do that I think most people are aware of, uh, which is they pollinate. Many people think this is all done by bees, but actually it's done by a whole um, swathe of insects, lots of different flies, butterflies and moths, wasps, beetles and so on, all busy pollinating wildflowers. About 80% of the world's wildflowers depend on insects to pollinate them. Anyway, so we we have a really selfish reason to look after insects. Um, but before I talk about how we can do that in our, our gardens, I also wanted to say something else about this. So it's easy to justify why we need pollinators and recyclers and so on um, uh, from, from a sort of selfish point of view. But I think we shouldn't just look after other species on our planet because they do something for us. That seems quite a sort of selfish approach. And it isn't why I care about insects. Um, uh, and, and it worries me because I think there are lots of insects that maybe don't do anything for us, but don't they still deserve to live? Club time. 
We haven't done one of these for quite a while. So today's book, full title, we should give, is The Garden Jungle or Gardening to Save the Planet. It's just one of the fabulous books released in the last couple of years by Professor Dave Gawson. And we are, not that we've ever met him, from now on going to call him Dave. Oh, yeah. I I wondered whether we were going to do that. We've not met him yet. No. But he is coming to Nottingham, so we hopefully will. Yeah, we're just saying Professor Gawson over and over again. (laughs) It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, If you're listening, Dave, I hope you don't mind. (laughs) (laughs) So in this particular book, The Garden Jungle, he looks at the background of why gardening for wildlife is important. So there's loads of books out there that will talk about the specific things you can do, plant this, dig a pond here, all that sort of stuff. But he goes more into the background of of why gardening for wildlife is important in general. He does, though, give you lots of practical advice as you go along. In fact, he actually gives you a recipe at the beginning of every chapter. I wasn't expecting, like, half cookery book <laughs> in this. But he has a particularly nice-sounding one for honey and apple pudding. Mm, that so I think, did sound nice, yeah. yes. That one jumped out at me as well. Yeah, and quince. What was the other one? Quince crumble. Yeah, that sounded like a nice one. He's really big into apple varieties and cider varieties in particular you will find all that out if you read the book a lot of it rests on his experience in his own garden so i thought it'd be worth quoting a few lines from him straight off early in the book he says as a conservationist it's all too easy to feel hopeless and despondent much of my personal inspiration to battle on has always come from the small scale victories i can achieve in my own garden which we totally subscribe to as well don't we wholeheartedly and also this is another quote The plants we choose to grow have a huge impact on the insects which will come and live on them or visit them. And this influences the food that will be available to birds, bats, shrews and predatory insects such as dragonflies. Everything starts with the plants. And I think that's a pretty good summary for the book overall. And I might say it's also a good excuse for us to repeat our own motto, plant more plants. That's it. That's what it is. It's all about the plants. The first third of the book is about getting the planting right, isn't it? Get the planting right and wildlife will follow. Yeah. So, yeah, that's one of the main themes of the book. I would say there are three main themes to the book. What we grow and how we grow it. That's really important. Then he goes on to why we have to stop poisoning our gardens. And finally, he talks about, if we do the first two, all the amazing wildlife that would just flood into our gardens. I think we should talk about that second point first, just to get it out the way. And also because we've already mentioned it in today's news. We said in a previous episode about how almost all plants you buy in a garden centre could be contaminated with pesticides, even when they have that perfect for pollinators or plants for pollinators label on them. And it was actually Dave's team that did the research on this. And he goes into loads more detail about it in the book, in a chapter that he calls the toxic cocktail. I have to say it was quite shocking because it's even worse than we first thought. Yeah, much, much worse. (laughs) Dave's team went out to a bunch of garden centres and randomly bought 29 plants. They looked for pesticide residues on or in the plants and found, and I quote, Only two out of the 29 plants that we tested contained no pesticides. 38% contained two or more insecticides. One flowering heather plant contained five different insecticides and five different fungicides, a veritable toxic bouquet. Yeah, and this research, well, it was all over the news, wasn't it, at the time? It was, yeah. And but it, we need to keep reminding people because we've got new gardeners all the time. Yeah, that's right. Despite perhaps because of all the, the press that he was getting, um, he actually received a lot of pushback from the horticulture industry. And again, I'm quoting him here. He says, The Horticultural Trades Association went on the offensive. It argued that the concentrations of pesticides we found were at, and in quotes, low levels, and that we sampled from, again, in quotes, a very restricted area of the country. And I just have to say, he mentions how like just stupid that criticism is because yes he went and bought all the plants in Sussex but they weren't all grown in Sussex you know I mean the Horticultural Trades Association know this they were just trying to fob the research off anyway so I will continue Um, he says for neonicotinoids the concentration found in the nectar and pollen of treated crops such as oilseed rape so that's when farmers are using it in the countryside generally are in the range of one to ten parts per billion in a study with bumblebee nests which is his specialism, we found that giving them pollen with six parts per billion of neonicotinoid was enough to reduce nest growth and resulted in an 85% drop in the number of new queens produced by each nest. That's huge. He continues, In the ornamental flowers, we found the neonicotinoid imidacloprid add up to a maximum concentration of 29 parts per billion. Again, remember that's compared to 10 parts per billion in the oilseed rape, typically. 
Clothianidin, that's another neonicotinoid, was found at 13 parts per billion, and thiamexatham at 119 parts per billion. And in the book, we won't go into it more now, but in the book he goes into much more detail about why these pesticides are so destructive. But the thing that we didn't say when we first talked about this study, and I hadn't realised at the time until reading this book, was that all of those neonicotinoids were already banned when he did the study. In other words, the monitoring of pesticide use in this country is so weak that almost every plant he actually went out and bought contained chemicals lethal to wildlife, but which were already illegal to use when he went and bought them. Yeah, I really found that shocking. And he also goes on in the book to talk about how a single flea treatment on your dog can contain enough neonicotinoid to kill 60 million bees. Yeah, that's just one of the drops, little drops you put on their neck. And and also that those neonics are likely passing into the urine and then into your garden. Or if you have a dog and then you let it into a water source, like a pond, like lots of people do, how it can then poison the aquatic life nearby. And I think, I don't think lots of people know that, people that own dogs. I don't think it's widely told, you know, I don't think vets are telling people that that's the case. Yeah, of course not. And one of the movements he talks about is the movement from treating fleas if your dog gets fleas to using it as a prophylactic so just mm. constantly treating and if you're constantly treating he he details the the insane amounts of neonics that are just getting into the countryside just from dog fur you know your dog splashing yeah. in a pond all that sort of stuff regarding food he says well he quotes a 2004 study from defra which looked at cox apples and how they're produced in the uk they found that cox apple orchards typically received 13 fungicide sprays five plant growth regulator sprays Five treatments of insecticide, two of herbicide, and one of urea over mm, a single growing sounds season. Sounds delicious. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a great crumble. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the most worrying thing about all of that, and this is the really distasteful bit, is the fact that a lot of these chemicals are in a group of, um, well, they're just in a group of chemicals called the organophosphates. And these were actually developed in Nazi Germany for use in the concentration camps. Ugh. I mean, these things are deadly. Yeah. at very very low concentrations to humans as well and there's he, he talks about um the number of people that are dying from these uh contamination of these um over the world but yeah there's they can still be well some of them are banned now since since that study um but there's still others coming on the market which he talks about all the time yeah. which you know that that essentially work in the same way slightly different chemical formula new branding new marketing but you know they could be doing exactly the same thing yeah, and we do try and buy organic veg. We get an organic veg box once a fortnight. But now anything that isn't organic, we very much give a good old wash to. I have to read it in this book, which we should, definitely should have done before. But Yeah, you know, we've had a friend who said, oh, you should wash stuff you get from the supermarket. And we just, yeah, sort of now, whatever. But after reading this book, we actually now do wash everything just give it just give it a rinse under the tap you know just in case as a final example he references a 2016 study which found glyphosate in the urine of 99 percent of a study group of 2000 germans and three quarters had levels five or more times the acceptable safe limit in drinking water and that that's the stuff that's in the weed killer yeah Yeah, it's exactly the same thing ellie was talking about in the um, bird study and what the council's probably spraying on our street yeah He says, like it or not, unless you buy exclusively organic food, you are very probably urinating weed killer. (laughs) Yeah. And I do like a wild wee, but now I think I might stop. (laughs) (laughs) TMI? Too much info. Carry on. Carry on. Yeah. So just to recap this section, um, because we're not going to spend all our time talking about this book and, you know, pesticides and things. But what we do know from what he's saying and from the research he's pointing out is that gardens that use weed killer have lower bird populations for whatever the reason, but, you know, the science is there. We know that weed killers are accumulating to unhealthy levels in our bodies, so our food. We know that neonicotinoids might be used on the garden plants we buy illegally with no way for us to tell as people buying them, even though they've got a plants for pollinators label on or what have you. And we know that the sort of even the bog standard dog treatments that we use can be poisoning our environment. So the question is, what do we actually do about that? Well, one thing, it's no surprise, I suppose, that Dave Goulson says, if you can afford it to buy organic food, but acknowledges that that's not possible for everyone. As gardeners, he says, for the moment, my days of buying garden centre plants are over and suggests growing your own plants from seed or sourcing from an organic plant supplier. And of course, he tells us to put the pesticide bottles down, which we constantly say. There's just no excuse for it. Yeah, we've really just touched the surface there. But we we thought it was important to mention, I mean, part of Dave's um, main research is his specialism on bees. 
and you know wild pollinator populations are really struggling and we've actually had people contact us say you can't just blame the farmers and that's that is true i mean farms especially growing things like oilseed rape there isn't an immediately obvious solution to using some of these chemicals farms aren't all going to be able to go organic tomorrow no although he does have a nice section on how they can radically reduce their chemical inputs through integrated pest management different things like that but nevertheless in domestic gardens the the situation is totally different so yeah we agree with dave that there is no excuse for home gardeners to be using pesticides no and with that bad news out the way let's talk about plants 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 or really what plants we should be growing to cut to the chase dave says this we love a quote in this episode to me it seems intuitive that planting natives is better than planting non-natives but I don't see any need to be obsessive about it, which is actually pretty much what we think too. The evidence is getting quite clear now that more natives is good for garden wildlife. And we are certainly doing that on our allotment. We're going to be sourcing lots and lots of native plants. We're having an entirely native plant border just to see if it can be done. But you don't have to be obsessive about it. If you want to be, that is brilliant, but don't get hung up about it. Yeah, that's right. And there will actually be more on that topic in the next episode. The reason for planting natives is for the leaf-eating invertebrates, which tend to be more specialised to native plants. He also has a nice section on the never-ending battle between plant defences and the ways that herbivores adapt to get around them. And I really like this. He uses the example of the orange tip butterflies, which only feed on cruciferous plants. That's plants in the Brassicaceae family. These plants produce sulfur-rich chemical defences called glucosinolates stored in the plant cells. When cells are munched by the orange-tipped caterpillars that come along, nom nom nom, the glucosinolates are released and turned into toxic mustard oils, which is what we know. We make a nice sauce out of it as humans, which is quite funny. <laughs> but over time, orange-tipped caterpillars have adapted and are able to convert glucosinolates into harmless compounds. So it's this, this arms race between the plants and the animals, and it is going on all around us all the time. Yeah, it's this amazing. chemical warfare is happening in our <laughs> gardens constantly. Now, whether native or not, another member of his research group, he must have had so many PhD students yeah. in his group. So the student was called... Mikhail Garbuzov, I don't know if I pronounced that right, sorry if you're listening, they looked at lists of wildlife-friendly plants. They just did a search of the internet and in the literature and found uh, quite a lot of these different lists. And they found them basically to be completely inconsistent. You know, you'd have hardly any overlap between one list and another. And when you actually look at the reasoning behind including something in a list or not, there was virtually no scientific evidence behind any of it. In most cases, they don't specify the type of plant. So they go to sort of the genus level. So they might say alliums are good, but are alliums good? I mean, there's hundreds of different species of allium. You know, which ones are the ones we want to be planting? Some are native, some aren't. And as an example of even why the cultivar can be important, in one of Garbazov's studies, he looked at different varieties of lavender. Now, lavender is something that is in most plants for pollinators lists. But he found, again, I quote, that Dutch lavender, so that's lavandula cross intermedia, is four times better than the commonly planted English lavender, as measured by the number of insects counted per metre of plant. Even within the Dutch lavenders, there was more than a two-fold difference between the best and worst variety, with gros bleu, best of all, and Old English the worst. So, you know, we go to a garden centre, we see all the different varieties, and there can be a massive difference even between cultivated varieties of the same species in terms of how attractive they are to pollinators. And all of that information is nowhere near most of the lists that are produced for the public. No, not very helpful at all. But thankfully, with Garbazov's research and others, we know from speaking to Helen Bostock, that's in the RHS, that the newer lists of wildlife-friendly plants coming out of the RHS are actually based on science, which is great. Great. Because we love science. Yeah, well, you can trust the newer RHS lists that they've actually taken this research into account now. So yes, more natives is good. And a really easy way to do that that we always tell people about is just to let your lawn grow a little bit. which he does. And you get this low flowering mix of things that will just come in on the breeze like daisies and self-heal and our little quintet that we've talked about in previous episodes. And he's actually got some really nice advice on how to do that. But his most simple advice when deciding what to grow is just to look around you, go to a garden, watch which plants are being visited by pollinators and plant some of them in your garden. It's really, really simple. 
But if you're itching to sow some seeds now, he recommends lots of plants at the end of the book for flowers and for berries. And a few, he says, are his real favourites, like giant hyssop, vipers bugloss, foxgloves, phacelia, thyme and marjoram. So there's just a few ideas for you. Yeah, if you are waiting for the book to come in the post and you want to sow some things from seed, get started with those. If you stop with the pesticides and you plant those plants, you get the planting right, then you will attract wildlife into your garden. And wildlife can include things like Colin the Cockchafer, <laughs> who his son um, actually named and kept as a pet for a while. Um, and also earwigs. And he must have a really soft spot for earwigs because he goes on in quite some detail about earwigs for a long section of this book um, and their life cycle, including the fact that the males of many species of earwig have two penises. <laughs> yes, yeah, so there's a spare one just trust in case. You to, trust you to home in on that. And also, this makes Ellie highly jealous. The penis thing. <laughs> <laughs> make that clearer. That should make me jealous of the earwigs. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> what was I saying? He had some Belgian. I always I keep reading this wrong in my notes. Mo- mothers, mothers. <laughs> yeah, he had some Belgian mothers visit his garden, which written down looks like he had a whole bunch of. Belgian mothers visiting his garden but they set up some traps and in just one night they recorded 864 individual moths from 154 species in his garden and one of these was the male of the water veneer moth and I had heard about this but I'd forgotten the female of this moth is flightless and aquatic yep. and the caterpillars live underwater and they survive by spinning a silk cocoon that traps air like a balloon and then they can actually breathe out of this cocoon. He has a whole section on ponds, but digging a wildlife pond for moths is not something you typically think of, I guess. It's not the traditional thing in most of the books, but no. it's there. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Moths yeah. are amazing. Moths are Did amazing. Did I ever say that? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> other animals are available. Um, yeah, he also follows this up with a little love letter to ants, which I particularly liked. And if anyone has ever wondered what the hell is the point in ants, then please read this book. They've first of all been around for over 100 million years so if that's not a reason to let them stay then nothing is but get this ben a queen of our very very common black ant that's laziest niger can live for 15 years so one individual can be 15 years and i think the oldest has actually been recorded as much older than that but i think that's a good that's a good ripe old age yeah i mean if you want a pet yeah get that's, a black ant. that's a significant <laughs> chunk of your life yeah. isn't it Um, Yeah, and that one ant is therefore able to produce offspring, that's their main role in the colony, populating the colony and making it work. And this is also curious because she only mates on her nuptial flight, which is when the new flying queens emerge from existing nests to find new habitat on what we all know as Flying Ant Day, although it happens over one or more days. And this, as Dave points out, means that she can hold viable sperm inside her for decades Not my choice of superpower, but impressive (laughs) nonetheless. (laughs) And there's loads of other excellent facts in there about ants from all over the world. And it's definitely actually left me wanting a formicarium, which is otherwise known as an ant farm, which lots of children will have. Please can we have an ant farm? (laughs) Are we allowed? Doesn't Uh, take out much room. I think we've got one in the back. That's just our garden. That doesn't count. we've got one. But on the serious side, ants do actually keep the soil aerated. They therefore help the plight of worms and other important soil life, not to mention helping plants. And they do also predate some pest species. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they farm aphids, which is a bit of a pain, but then they're also, you know, a beneficial predator in other ways. So really important. Thinking of the soil and soil aeration, you know, another soil aerating creature, of course, which has its own chapter in the book, is worms. And did you know, Ellie, that Cleopatra put out a royal decree that anyone caught taking worms out of Egypt would be put to death? I did because I read the book. I know you did. That was rhetorical. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm a very literal person. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. That's amazing. It is amazing. It is actually isn't it? amazing. Yeah. She knew what how important they were. But it, yeah, it does highlight how some civilization have known the importance of worms for soil fertility for a really, really long time. And despite this, and the uptake in interest during the Darwin era in the UK, because Darwin did loads of studies on worms. Um, we still really lack long-term data on how they're faring. And we know the long-term data is lacking 
because we actually found this out during our interview of Dr. Emma Sherlock, who's the senior curator of annelids down at the Natural History Museum. And the annelids is the group that includes worms. And she realised that there wasn't enough data here and along with several others actually set up the Earthworm Society of Great Britain to go out and find that data to do the long-term studies. Dave Gawson actually mentions this society and encourages people to get involved. And I hadn't realised until I read the book, Dave Gawson is the person who set up the Bumblebee Conservation Trust as well. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, Team Bumble. Yeah. For sure. Of course, any book on gardening to save the planet wouldn't be, in our opinion, complete without a chapter on composting, which is how he actually finishes the book. And more specifically, the chapter is actually called The Cycle of Life. And I thought it was pretty clever in how it begins with a call for people to start eating more of what they find. Notably roadkill, and he's got some pretty funny anecdotes. I actually laughed out loud (laughs) about the deer, but you have to read it to find out what I'm talking about. Um, That's, of course, if you do eat meat. But also to get out and do a spot of foraging, he thinks it would do huge things to reconnect us all to our food in an entirely natural way, which doesn't require intensive farming or huge sprayed fields of crops. And he doesn't mean that that's the only way to get a meal, more that it instills a sort of waste not want not philosophy into all of us, which is, of course, what composting is all about. Because to turn unwanted vegetation back into compost to directly grow the next generation of plants in your garden, whether that's to feed yourself or the creatures in your garden, or just to have some nice flowers, is one of the most environmentally friendly things we can all do as gardeners. I mean, the whole book for me was like a fact bomb done in a way that felt like you were chatting to your mate down the pub. It was full of really great anecdotes all the way throughout. Yeah, he's funny. He is really funny. funny. I, I thought it was a fabulous book. And actually, yeah, I mean, if you haven't read it, we're quite late to the party because it's been out for a few years now. Yeah, about three years. Then go out and buy it. It's only about £8 or you can find it secondhand or check out your local charity shop. to our native plant of the month now and this time around we are talking about holly the scientific name of which is ilex aquifolium and this scientific name ilex comes from its resemblance to another tree which is quercus ilex as both are evergreen and both have spine leaves and some of you might recognize quercus ilex as the homoic but home h-o-l-m is actually a middle english name for holly so the English name for home oak was borrowed from its resemblance to holly, whereas the Latin name for holly was borrowed from its resemblance to home oak, which is a nice, neat little circle. So it's like a chicken and egg thing? Yeah, which one came exactly. first? <laughs> exactly. Why is it called this? Because it's called that, which is called that because it's called this. <laughs> I like it, but it's a good way of remembering. Other common names include hulver and hollin. And many towns and villages across the UK are named after the tree, like Hollington in Derbyshire, Holver in Suffolk and Hollybush in Herefordshire. But if your village has Holm in the name, H-O-L-M, then it can also mean island. So you have to be a little careful. For example, Holly Tree Home, for instance, in East Yorkshire means island with a holly tree. And I actually looked this up on Google and the farm with that name sits right in between uh, a dike, a beck, a fenland drain, on three sides and then the river hull on the final Aww, side and um, so nice. all the water's being drained now but at, at one point that suggests that that land would have all been flooded around it um yeah and when you learn to read these these place names it's really fascinating what you can find out about the countryside anyway so for those who don't know let's describe the tree holly is an evergreen tree with a green bark when young and that bark when it's green can actually photosynthesize like the leaves oh that's interesting yeah i i think that must help them when they're They're growing in the shade. It's just Mm. a little bit extra photosynthetic material. Um, And as they get older, that green bark turns to a sort of grey-brown colour. It is green twigs and hard, creamy white wood. It can grow up to 23 metres tall, although 10 to 13 metres is more usual when it grows amongst scrub. And 17 or 18 metres is typical of its growth in woodlands. It can live for up to 300 years and perhaps more in exceptional cases. Being evergreen... The leaves don't drop in the winter. Nevertheless, each individual leaf does have a lifespan. And with holly, that's typically around five years, after which that one individual leaf will turn brown and drop. And there's usually a a significant number of leaf drop in the summer. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're not constant throughout the year. 
These leaves are green and they're spined with a wavy or undulating edge. So the spiky bits on the actual edge of the holly leaf, that's called a spine. And often the leaves higher on the plant, which is away from grazing animals, and obviously those spines are uh, like a deterrent to the animals, um, they'll then grow without spines. So above a certain level, they get more and more smooth. Now, new botanical words for today are all about those leaves. Botany. So we have adaxial, abaxial, and coriaceous. Nice. So adaxial, this is spelled A-D-A-X-I-A-L, describes the upper surface of the leaf, while abaxial, which is A-B, axial, describes the lower surface. And you better remember that, Ellie, because I'm going to test you on that later on. He has got the most (laughs) evil look in his face as he says that. I know, because you haven't (laughs) read the rest of the night, so you have to remember that. What, do I have to remember which is which, or do I have to remember them from scratch, like the whole word? Of course you have to remember that. The whole scratch? The whole whole scratch? It's only two so far. Adaxial, upper surface of the leaf. Abaxial, the lower surface. So abs is like abs, which is sort of lower down. That's how I'm going to remember it. Anyway, carry on. What's the ad? I don't know yet. (laughs) It's a work in progress. So with holly, the adaxial surface is glossy and the abaxial surface is dull. The leaf altogether is coriaceous and that means leathery. Mm. So that is applied to lots of different plants. Um, These aren't specifically for holly. Um, So any really thick leathery leathery leaf is is described as coriaceous. Um, So next time you see a holly, pick a leaf and feel for the coriaceous texture while admiring its glossy adaxial surface. I I wonder why these facts didn't make it into the Holly and the Ivy song. (laughs) (laughs) The Holly and the Ivy, when they're fully grown with a coriaceous texture, with a glossy adaxial surface. (laughs) Doesn't quite well, does it? I think... We have to remember that for our Christmas episode next year. (laughs) Okay, I'll work on it. Although you're better at songs than me and singing. But anyway. Uh, Yeah. So a final curiosity of the leaf is that they contain significant quantities of caffeine, but they're also toxic to humans. So don't use them for your morning brew. And the tree also has small white flowers, which lead onto those bright red berries later in the year, which look fab against that evergreen foliage and which are really important for wildlife. A little on its folk history now. One of the old names, Hollin, is the name for a stand of hollies, which were regularly cut for cattle and sheep forage, which is a tradition known right up until the 18th century. And sometimes the leaves were cut off and then actually ground up for various methods. So you'd think it wouldn't be the sort of thing that cattle and sheep would want to be eating because obviously, you know, it's thick and spiky. But apparently as tough as the leaves seems, they're, they're actually a really useful winter food with very high calorie content and high levels of nutrients too. They probably preserve for a long time as well. I guess well, green, you pick them they? and then yeah. you, yeah, and then they can be ground up later when they need them in yeah, the winter. So. Maybe. Yeah. The wood is hard and heavy, but John Evelyn in 1664 added that the millwright, turner and engraver prefer it to any other wood. And holly can be easily coppiced or pollarded and was the premier wood for making whips and certain different tool handles. So if you think at the turn of the last century, or no, the century before now, the time of sort of horse-drawn carriages and that horsepower being the main way people got around, lots of people carrying carrying a whip for their horse. And at that time, 210,000 holly whips were being produced each year. And like elder, it's thought to be a tree you must ask permission of before harvesting. Otherwise, the wood you cut will be no good. And apparently what you're supposed to do is you walk up to the tree, you ask if you can cut it, and you receive some sort of feeling about whether it says yes. Okay. And um, if they say yes, you need to offer run. it something. <laughs> Just as if a tree starts talking to me, I'm going to be out of there, well, It depends what other things you've been eating in the woods while you've been wandering <laughs> around. Um, other uses for, for the lids and handles of teapots, as the wood rarely cracked. I thought that was quite an interesting one. And... With your background in uh, coastal defences, um, they're yeah. even used for sea groins. That is interesting. I should have been more inquisitive about what, what they actually used for those. Well, now I presume they use some sort Something of pre- preserved well, timber. Mostly rock. You don't really get wooden sea groins being that's put true. in. After. That's true. Um, they're also high on my list of uh, the type of wood for my Morris dancing stick, but I'm not allowed to t- collect any more sticks because Ben won't let me. Because we have, we pay for a really expensive lockup and it's half filled with sticks. It's supposed to be for the business. <laughs> Whole young holly trees 
have been used to clean chimneys. And what they used to do is they would, somebody would be at the top of the chimney, hang a rope down, somebody at the bottom would tie it onto a, a young holly tree and they just pull the whole tree right up the mm. chimney and would just scour the chimney clean. Um, they've also been used as an alternative for Christmas trees. A little sprig hung over the door can keep out witches and goblins. Handy. And it can also <laughs> cure cattle of ringworm, apparently, amongst much more so besides. So wide-ranging, these uses. It's amazing. Goblins and ringworm. <laughs> can it cure the goblin of ringworm? That's what I want to know. That's Well, it will certainly stop the goblin giving ringworm to your cows. Right. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, if you want to know more about these folk uses uh, of the plants that we talk about, all the ones going back in the podcast. Um, I'm going to again recommend uh, a brilliant book called Flora Britannica by Richard Maybe, and he has eight full pages on holly, including lots more on its its use in older industries. And um, so I really recommend getting that. We should also mention that along with hawthorn, holly is one of the most common hedging plants, both on farmland and in ornamental gardens. And the Earl of Haddington's garden at Tyningham in the 19th century, supposedly had a holly hedge 2,699 metres long. Wow. Four metres wide and in places seven metres high. (laughs) So I'm so glad I'm not the gardener that has to trim that hedge. (laughs) Yeah, that's going to be some cut-up arms, isn't it? Ouch, ouch. So where does holly grow? Aside from the UK, it can be found as far north as Norway. It can go south to Algeria and Tunisia and the Atlas Mountains. Uh, and then east through Bulgaria, Romania, and Greece. It's unclear about whether it's really native or not to the Turkey, but some say it is. Some say it's spread there, been spread there by humans to sort of Turkey, Lebanon, Syria. We've definitely spread it to the US and Canada, and it was introduced by Brits to New Zealand and Australia, where it is now highly invasive. In Britain, it's found across the country, but it's more common in the south and west, as it doesn't like cold particularly. It will take an exposed location, so it can grow right exposed on a hillside, but it won't thrive where the mean temperature in January is below 0.5 degrees C or below 12 degrees mean temperature in July. Generally, a lowland plant in the UK it can be found up to 520 metres above sea level in Argyll, while in Europe it can reach 1,500 metres above sea level in the Alps, 1,900 metres above sea level in the Caucasus and 2,300 metres above sea level in those Atlas Mountains. One major difference, though, between its habitat in the UK and elsewhere, especially further south, is its ability to cope with direct sunlight. In the UK, it can grow in open scrub. You can get entire holly woodlands where the, the crowns of the trees are poking out, or it can grow as an understory within oak, beech and ash woods. But in the Mediterranean, it's an obligate shade plant, so it can only survive growing in the shade of other trees Mm, that's interesting so it's yeah adapting to the the higher sun intensity down there i guess it must be the sun intensity because it's not the it's not the temperature Mm. i don't think as a freestanding tree it will typically grow one main trunk but it's also prone to suckering and even rooting where the hanging stems touch the ground which means that one single tree can make this really wide dense stand which can actually be sort of hollow in the middle so you can like walk right inside the tree and just run around the trunk. And because it's evergreen, it's always got the leaves and it's really dense, it provides a fantastic shelter for wildlife. Naturally, holly is tolerant of both chalky, and that's calcareous conditions, so it can be found on limestone soils, but also on acid podzols. That's another type of soil where holly actually aids encroachment of oaks onto heather heath and so the way that works is a podzol is a specific type of soil in one of the horizons in the soil so that's one of the layers in the soil it turns a sort of ashy gray color and that's because lots of the the minerals in it just wash down into a layer below and it leaves pretty much just quartz crystals in this layer and in podzol soils you don't get a lot of soil life mixing the top layer of the soil and the subsoil but because holly sheds a deep leaf litter over time it slowly breaks down and adds organic matter to that quartz layer and over time this transforms it to a type of soil known as brown earth which has a much greater level of soil life much greater movement of of the soil life up and down that soil structure and in turn that allows actually oaks to grow so it's a real key part of succession from one type of habitat to another 
really interesting. So holly specifically has that trait. Obviously, other trees probably do it as well, but because it can grow on acid soils. It's because it can grow on the acid and it's yeah. because of the thickness of the leaf litter okay. and how dense the leaf litter is and how slowly it breaks down. It right. doesn't just get washed off elsewhere. Wow, oh, that's so niche. I love it. Yeah. Now we know what the tree looks like and where it grows, let's talk about its sexual antics. Holly is dioecious, meaning that they're separate female and male plants, although very rarely bisexual plants have been recorded, which I didn't know before. Flowers open in May and June and around six millimetres across with minute white petals born on two-year-old wood. And that's important because if you're trimming your holly back every year, you never get that two-year-old wood, so then it will never flower. The female flower has a four-chambered ovary with four ovules and four stigmas, forming a disc-like plate on top, while the male flower has four stamen. The flowers are insect pollinated and once pollinated produce berries which mature by November or December. The berries are actually a droop because they have a fleshy outer layer and a hard seed inside, in this case a nutlet. Because each berry has four ovules, it ends up with four seeds. So each berry has four individual seeds inside. And if you want to know why one ovule makes one seed, then we did a whole episode on fruit, which is episode 27. So you can go back and check that out if you want a reminder. Each of the berries, the droops, are between 7 and 12 millimetres in diameter and typically red, although there are lots of cultivated varieties and even some wild specimens with yellow or orange berries. And given that each twig can hold up to 60 berries and a large tree can carry upwards of 30,000 fruit, that means a big tree can produce well in excess of 120,000 seeds every single year. Nice. Eventually these seeds are eaten by birds or rodents and of course they're distributed in their poo and germination typically happens around March or April time. And as we said, holly can also propagate itself from suckering or layering where the branches touch the ground. But in that case, the propagation is a bit different because it's actually a clone of the parent. As holly is such a useful plant to humans, we also want to know if it's useful to wildlife. And if we start with the flowers, they're a favourite of bees particularly the andrina bees which you might find mining little nest tunnels in your gardens and now is the time of year as things are just starting to warm up start looking for those telltale little volcanoes with a hole in the middle right in the middle of your lawn so you might find those if you're lucky and at least 29 species of invertebrate eat the leaf as part of their life cycle including here we go ellie the caterpillars of the yellow barred brindle (laughs) the double striped pug and the holly tortrix moths i will be looking those up (laughs) It's also the food plant of the holly blue butterfly, but in that case, the caterpillars, because sort of the leaves are a bit too tough for them, they actually eat the flower buds. And also of the holly leaf miner, which is actually a type of fly, and I'm going to make a special mention for this now. The larvae of this leaf miner produce telltale signs as they eat through a leaf, so the fly will come down, it will lay its eggs on the leaf, and the larvae then eat through just below the surface of this of the leaf, um, and they produce rusty coloured blotches near the centre. And you might have seen this if you have a holly in your own garden. They rarely cause significant damage to a tree, but they're a vital food source for other wildlife. The larvae, while they're inside the leaf, are eaten by blue tits and several other birds. And they're attractive to a range of parasitoid wasps as well, including several generalists. And there's even a holly leaf miner specialist parasitoid, the name of which is Opius illicis. Courses specialist parasitoid. That's what they do, isn't it? Exactly. They're just... <laughs> I love it. The fruit is really important for mammals like wood mice and dormice, for many birds, especially the thrushes. So that's the red wings, field fairs and the like. And missile thrushes in particular are known to guard particularly good trees. So trees with loads and loads of berries on. And they'll sit there in the tree. And if any other thrushes come anywhere nearby, they'll dart out and chase them Mm -hmm. off finally of course we have the structure of the tree itself so especially where it creates these dense thickets it's really important for shelter the deep deep dry leaf litter is really good for nesting hedgehogs and even larger mammals like foxes and deer will use it to hide away in the winter weather really good for wildlife all around and if we've convinced you to grow one what do you need to know Well, as I've already said, holly can take an exposed location, but not if it's very cold. So if you live somewhere where winter temperatures in January, and this is the key month, if in January the winter temperature is on average around zero degrees, which isn't many places in the UK, but there are some, 
then I would give Holly a miss. Otherwise, though, regarding soil type, it's very accommodating and it will grow on either acid or alkaline soils, as I've already explained. You can grow it as a large tree if you have the space. It does make a really substantial tree um, if you do have the space for it. But of course, you can keep it clipped back within a hedge. And it takes very well to coppicing and to pollarding too. So even if you grow it as a freestanding tree, if you're feeling it's getting too big, then you can cut it right back, literally in the case of coppicing, saw it down to the ground. Or with pollarding, you saw it at a, a higher height, right back to the framework. And it will be just fine. It will just shoot back up the following year. Now, you can grow it in shade. As I said, in natural woodlands, it will grow as part of the understory and below the canopy of the taller trees. But actually, I would advise against it in gardens because shaded plants produce fewer berries. So that's, you know, one mark against it in terms of wildlife. And also the length of the stem internodes extends. And what that means is the internode is the space between the nodes on a twig and the nodes are where the leaves come out. So essentially what you have is a longer twig with fewer leaves on it, much sparser. And eventually, with a really sort of highly shaded plant, that gives the whole plant a sort of sparse, straggly look. Whereas when grown in the sun, it's altogether, you know, sort of a much bushier and healthier looking plant. So it's not actually healthier in the sun, but it just, you know, ornamentally, it looks like a nicer, nicer tree. So to get one in your garden, there are three options. For a wild type plant, you can collect and sow your own seeds it's a long-term process, although it's actually really easy. You just need to wait quite a while. It requires sort of rotting the fruit first to extract the seeds. And the whole process takes 18 months or so. But there's a brilliant guide on the Conservation Volunteers website about how to do it. So if you are interested, then uh, there's a link in the show notes to that. One thing to remember, though, is that holly doesn't transplant very well. So when your new plants have actually grown on a little or... If you happen to have holly seedlings springing up in your garden and you want to move them around, you've got to be very careful to get them up roots and all and all the surrounding soil you want to be intact when you're transplanting it. Otherwise, they really don't like it. And if you've got a larger specimen in your garden that you want to move somewhere else, if you're transplanting it, then I would coppice or pollard it at the same time, reduce the top growth and that will help it grow away in its new space. You can take layers or cuttings too, and you have to do that with a heel, um, but we don't really have time to describe how to do that, so I'll include some links into the RHS about how to do that. Taking cuttings is the only way to get a named cultivar because they don't come true from seed. So if you've got a particularly nice cultivar in your garden, you want more of it, then you have to do that by cuttings. And talking of cultivars, the last option, of course, is to go out and buy one. So there are hundreds of holly cultivars on the market, some of which, like ferox go back at least to the 17th century and that's actually quite an interesting plant it's got spines on the top surface of the leaf not just the edge Ooh, never so seen that before i will show you one in a garden this week because we've got a garden with one in it okay yeah, yeah. going around with my eyes shut again. <laughs> it's it's right i only found it about a month ago because i uncovered it from some from some ivy oh. and i looked at it and i'd already done the research for this episode and i went Ah, <laughs> that's what it is. So yeah, this particular um, variety has been banned since the 17th century. And because it's spiny on the top of the leaf and on the edge, it's often used uh, for security hedges. Extra spike. Exactly. So the top surface of a leaf, Ellie, what do we call that? <laughs> uh, adaxial. That's very good. Well done. You were listening. You were listening. Now, lots of the cultivars are variegated, meaning that they basically have two-tone leaves, two different colours, usually yellow and green, but also yellow and white with hollies. I've actually read that if the variegation is in the centre, so the outside of the leaf is the normal green, but the inside of a leaf is yellow, that those leaves tend to revert to green over time. And I've noticed this in, again, gardens that we've been looking after. Whereas if the variegation is on the outside, so you get a, a yellow edge or white edge to the leaf, and then that variegation tends to be more stable. So there's a couple of variegated varieties, and all of these have the RHS's Award of Garden Merit, which means that they're really good doers for your garden. So these are Argentia Marginata, Silver Queen, and Handsworth New Silver, although there's many others. The variety Amber has orange berries, while Pyramidalis Fructoluteo has yellow berries. And there's also varieties with odd leaf forms. So there's, there's a variety called Myrtifolia, which has elongated and narrow leaves. And you can tell that the leaves look like a myrtle, so the folia means leaf. So it's 
foliar leaf looking like a myrtle. And also there's another one, J.C. Van Toll, very popular cultivar whose leaves are almost spineless. So if you don't want to be pricked by your plants while you're walking past, then that might be one to go for. But before you rush out and buy a cultivar, remember holly is dioecious. If you want berries, you need a female plant. And if you are far away from another holly tree, you will then need, of course, a male plant to actually pollinate it as well. But because all the cultivars are clones, all the cultivars are either male or female. So remember to check the sex of the plant before you buy and the person you're buying it from will be able to tell you. So you want female cultivars for berries, males if you need further pollination. But of course, if you need an extra spiny hedge, then that's not so important. Coming up in the next episode, we have an interview. We've not done this for a very, very long time. We've been cooped up in our house for too long and we are breaking forth and going down to London and going to the Natural History Museum, this time to interview Dr. Abigail Lowe, who is Citizen Science Officer and also an expert in DNA metabarcoding. And we're not going to explain any more here because hopefully you're going to listen to the episode to find out all about what that is and why it's important in wildlife gardening. Very excited about that. If you want, and this is the fourth time we're mentioning Dave Gorson in this episode, if you want to see him live because you've read his books, you've heard what we're saying about him and you want to know more, then here's the guests of the Nottingham Organic Gardeners at their spring lecture, which is coming up soon, Saturday the 25th of March in Nottingham. So if you're in the area on that Saturday, do come along. It only costs a fiver and he's speaking to a great big lecture hall and we are going to be there somewhere in the audience. So if you want to come and meet us as well, we're going to be there. Um, But it's a great chance to come and see him speak. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. And finally, if you missed out on our meetup down in Hampshire yesterday and you really wanted to come along but you didn't hear about it, then the way we're sharing information like that is through our new newsletter and you can subscribe on wildlifegardenpod.substack.com. Totally free, just it's a really good way of us keeping in touch without talking too much in the podcast about what's going on. With that said, keep exploring your gardens. Bye! Bye!